0: Today's reading comes from Philippians 3, 1 through 7. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gained I had counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Cooper. Um, Did Stephanie mention that you're doing the sermon too? No, okay, all right. Appreciate it, Cooper. Good morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? All right, good to see you all. Um, Baptisms were great this morning. We had five people get baptized, lots of really good stories. It was a sweet time. Um, I think we're gonna be able to put some pictures on the website um, later this week. We hope we will be able to at any rate. we are still in the book of Philippians, and so turn there. We're, gonna, we're actually going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter uh, 3. We just wanted to read the first 7 to kind of get us into it, but we're going to look at um, the first 11 verses, and we will just be there uh, the whole morning. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful and grateful for who you are. Um, we should be overjoyed and thankful for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, uh, you loved us and your son came and died for us uh, so that we could be reconciled to you. We thank you for that and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who is with us even now. And I pray that we would uh, open ourselves up and welcome the Holy Spirit, be filled by your Holy Spirit, um, orient our lives towards you, our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears towards you, and we thank you for your word and its truth, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to, uh, to apply the word to our hearts and our minds. Uh, God, help us, as Paul says at the beginning of this letter, uh, to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we have been called, not because it saves us, but because we are saved. God, we thank you for that, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we've been going through the book of Philippians verse by verse. We've got eh, three or four weeks left of Philippians. Um, And I want us to remember again that this is different than teaching out of the Gospels or out of the Old Testament prophets or out of historical narrative because this is a letter. And so as a letter, there's gonna, it's, it, we're just gonna teach it a little bit differently. We're gonna proclaim the gospel a little bit differently. It's all the same message, but we do it a little bit differently because of the genre uh, that we're dealing with. And so as a letter, remember, it's gonna be instruction and then application, instruction and then application. And there's lots of application, but it has to be built on the instruction that we find uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in the year 61 AD. Uh, These 11 verses have a flow to them as well and I want to talk about that a little bit before we get into it. So the flow goes like this, rejoice, warning, and then gospel. So it's kind of a little bit of a J curve in in that sense, but rejoice, warning, and gospel. Verse 1 is where Paul reminds us and calls us again to this idea of rejoicing. Uh, This letter is all about joy and rejoicing, and so he's calling us to that again, and he's saying rejoice in the unity, the humility, the obedience, and the resurrection of the gospel-centered life that we've been talking about uh, through the entirety of chapter 2, which would be our last two uh, messages. So we want to remind you to rejoice in that, but then he gives us a warning. And this warning is stark, it's firm, some people might even describe it as a little bit harsh, but this is, last week we talked about how Paul was this man of great compassion, of great caring, and of great love, the way he talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, but here's this other side of Paul where he, he gets uh, very narrowed in and very focused on a, on a danger to any church at any time, but specifically a danger that he's talking about at the church in Philippi, and he's gonna warn them about that. And that would be anybody who is a false teacher that is proclaiming a false gospel. And so verses two through six are all about this, this warning. Paul reserves his strongest words, generally speaking, for when he's warning about people who would like to come in and tell you about a false gospel. And here's what's really important to understand about false teachers and false gospels. They don't usually come from outside of the church, but they come from within the church. And that's what makes them so difficult. Um, One of the challenges of being in a church is that a lot of people think that our greatest threat comes from outside of the church. As a church, the greatest threats that we have are going to come from outside of the church, from the culture and all that. And, and and it's true, there are threats that come from outside of the church. But when a local church dies or is divided or is destroyed, almost always it comes from somebody who's already on the inside, somebody who proclaims to be a Christian, somebody who then wants to use their platform in the church to start to falsely teach about what the gospel is and isn't. And so Paul has this tremendous warning. So what he does is he's looking ahead in these verses, knowing that there's always gonna be a threat uh, of false teachers presenting a false gospel in any church situation. This isn't something that just happened in Paul's day. This is something that has happened throughout the centuries and continues to happen today. And the false gospel that uh, Paul is speaking against today is specifically a false gospel of achievement, status, and piety, or anything that adds to Jesus. It's the false gospel that says, yes, Jesus is Lord, yes, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is wonderful, but you have your part as well in order to be saved, in order to be worthy of being saved, in order to make yourself noticed by God so that you can be saved, you also have your part. And whether it's, it's uh, um, you have to go out and do this or you have to get circumcised, whatever it is, they're adding to the gospel of Jesus. And Paul is always telling us it's Jesus and Jesus alone, end of story, that's the end of the discussion. It's all in Jesus and it's by the grace of Jesus that we are saved. And so the false gospel he's talking about, which I'll explain in a minute, comes from these, this group of people called the Judaizers, who insist that you have to be Jewish first before you can be a Christian, and I'll explain all of that in a minute. But false gospels come in a variety of packages, um, and they're all very enticing. One of the, one of the most uh, challenging and threatening false gospels that we find in the church today, right now, is how people want to reinterpret the Bible to say something that it doesn't say and that it has never said. In other words, I call it the new transformation. Uh, Scripture talks about how when we um, enter the gospel, when we accept Jesus as Lord, we begin to study his word and submit our will to God's will through Jesus Christ. We will be transformed by that. And scripture talks, especially in the New Testament, it talks a lot about that transformation that happens to us. Today, what people want today is we want to transform God's word into saying something that fits our narrative. So what's being transformed is God's word, not us. We get to stay where we are while the Bible is transformed. You even heard uh, Trey up here earlier uh, during the interview. He, he said the gospel never leaves a person where they are. You can't continue to be the same person if you really believe the gospel. But people would like to be con- continue to be the same person and get the Bible to say something. That's a false gospel and that's false teaching and we have to be aware of that today. And it comes from inside of the church, mostly not outside of the church. And then that gospel part is verses seven through 11 where Paul then makes his case. He says all that other stuff that we tend to put our faith in, we need to count that as loss in order to have the gain of Jesus Christ in our life because that's the only thing that counts. The only place where our righteousness is going to be found is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. End of story. And that is our iconic verse for today. It's verse 7 where Paul writes, whatever gain I had, all of this worldly stuff. It's not that this stuff was bad, but whatever gain I thought I had from it, I now count as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in Christ. I'll lose everything in order to have the gospel of Jesus. And that verse, verse seven, reminds me of a tiny little short parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. Most of the parables that we remember are the longer parables. There's, this parable in Matthew 13 is like one or two verses, and it's really simple. Jesus says uh, a guy discovers a field that has an incredible treasure in the middle of the field. And so he's the only one that knows about the treasure, and so he runs out and sells everything that he has. He gives up everything in his life in order to be able to go and purchase that field just to have that treasure. And what Jesus is saying is the treasure in that field is the gospel. It's the good news. The gospel of Jesus, which helps us understand that you and I are sinners, and as sinners, we've been separated from God by our sin, and there's nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up and make ourselves worthy of salvation. That There's no way that you and I can bridge that gap between God and us The only thing that can can save us is, in fact, the life, death, and resurrection in Jesus. And so the gospel, the good news, is that we place our faith in Jesus, who lived that perfect life on our behalf, and that's how we we find our righteousness. That's the gospel. And Jesus is saying that field contains the gospel. And the way we should approach the gospel is that we should be willing to give up everything uh, in order to be able to attain that. So I hear that parable of the field in verse 7. So these Judaizers, these false teachers, this is what the warning is about in this specific case. But the principles of false teaching and false gospel apply to any, any false teacher or any false gospel. But in this particular case, it's those who want to add to or alter the gospel of Jesus. Judaizers were Jewish people who had become Christians but then had decided to teach that the only way you can become a Christian is to first be like us and be Jewish. So the first thing you have to do is convert to Judaism. You have to get circumcised, and you have to follow the old covenant law of Moses, and then you are prepared and ready to become Christian and be saved by Jesus. So that's adding to the gospel, and that's giving us something to do to clean ourselves up before we are worthy of being saved by Jesus. That is a false gospel. The Judaizers, in effect, are people who are coming to rob your field after you've just sold everything to be able to buy it. They want to take your field away from you. And this was a common New Testament challenge. We saw this same problem with the Judaizers in the letter that Paul wrote 15 years earlier uh, to the church in Galatia. Big problem with them there. We saw this problem in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. Big problem in Jerusalem. So we've seen this everywhere, and it's a common problem throughout the centuries and even in the church today. It is is any gospel that is built on our achievement, our status, or our piety. And Paul gives such a stern warning to the church in Philippi. This is indicative of the fact that he has heard that there are these Judaizers that are hanging around at Philippi, and their teaching is starting to get into the water there, and so he wants to warn them against it. It's just like some Christians today, those who want to add to or change the gospel of Jesus altogether in order to make a new gospel. Paul reminds us it's Jesus alone, and that's all we need. He is sufficient. In fact, he's more than sufficient, he is overwhelming. And when we try to add to or alter the gospel, we turn people away from truth and freedom and turn them toward bondage. We need to remember that. There is truth and freedom in the True, pure, genuine gospel of Jesus. And anytime we add something, we are adding bondage to that. We're turning people away from freedom. So Paul's treatise is that the idea or concept that anyone can save themselves or have a part in their salvation through accomplishment, piety, status, or plain old rule following is vapid. And he says, and I'm a great example of that. He says, I was once that person. I'm a negative example here. I think it's interesting that in chapter two, if you were here for that, Paul uses Jesus as a positive example for what humility looks like, and then he uses himself as a negative example of what happens when we try to put our faith in our own flesh, in our own self. So let's look at this. Uh, We'll go three or four verses at a time. We'll start with verses one through three of chapter uh, three. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So that verse one is that rejoice section. And Paul says, whatever is happening, Whatever's going on in your life, whether there's unity, there's humility, obedience, tribulation, celebration, victory, or defeat, whatever it is, always rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Our power, our joy, and our life comes from Jesus and nothing but Jesus. So rejoice, but rejoice in Him. Now, the second half of that verse, though, is a little bit obscure. He says, he says, I'm going to write these same things and it's no trouble for me and it won't be a problem for you. What exactly does that mean? Well, here's what he's saying. I've been writing about these false teachers in this false gospel my whole ministry career because it's always a problem. There's always a false teacher and always a false gospel hanging around the church. So I've been doing this, I've done this before. It's not a problem. I have no trouble writing this to you. And by the way, by writing it to you, it's not gonna be a problem for you. In fact, it's gonna help you. It's gonna be something that protects you from the dangers of false gospels. Any false gospel is very enticing. We have to understand that. Otherwise, people wouldn't follow it. There's always something enticing about a false gospel. It's easier. Uh, it it puffs you up. It makes you more well known. It gives you something that you've been longing for. That for some reason God thinks you shouldn't have, or that it isn't God's responsibility to give to you. See, it, the false gospel is always covered with, with sugar and and icing. And the false gospel is covered with bolsa donuts or craft beer, whatever it is that'll get you. It's covered with that good thing that'll entice you in. And you have to be careful because once you get into the false gospel, it'll destroy you. It's, it's vain, it's vapid, it's empty, and it will destroy you. And so we need to, we need to remember that and understand that, 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 that any false gospel is going to be your ultimate demise. And then in verse 2, he starts with the warning. And it's interesting, some of the translations, the... Um, ESV gets this right here. Um, they say three times, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Th- they translate it three times. Sometimes you'll see a translation where it's just watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators of the flesh. They're leaving out um, two of those times that, Jesus, w- that Paul says, watch out. It's the Greek word blepite. It also means beware. Be on guard. Look out for. And anytime an ancient orator or philosopher or ancient wise man says, it uses that three times repetition, says something or writes something three times in a small uh, space, they're saying, hey, hey, listen up. You may not have heard anything else I've said, but you need to listen to this. This is really important. Pay attention. Paul is saying, watch out. This is dangerous. And he says, look, he says, listen, this is not a difference of opinion, but it is an untruth that will kill you. We're not talking about a difference of opinion here. You need to understand that. It's kind of reminiscent of what Peter writes in his first letter in chapter 5 when Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, blepatee. Blepite, blepite, blepite. be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him firm in your faith firm in the true gospel let me tell you something any false gospel has at the core of it the agenda the scheme of satan to get us off of our game and yes Paul says something kind of nasty here. He goes so far as to call these false teachers dogs. This is not a compliment. And it's ironic that he would call them dogs because dogs is what pious religious Jews, in other words, the Judaizers that Paul is talking about here, would call Gentiles. They didn't like the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, and so they would call them dogs. It was was the ultimate put down. Paul also used to call Gentiles, non-Jews, dogs. And he used to also call Christians dogs. When he was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians, he was going up there to put those dogs in their place. But now Paul is saying, actually, guys, the dogs aren't Gentiles and the dogs aren't Christians. Christians are saved by grace and they live by the Spirit. The real dogs are you Judaizers because you are calling for others to live up to your expectations rather than simply accepting God's beautiful grace and mercy. He says, that's a problem. The Judaizers' religious requirements are an attack on grace and therefore an attack on the gospel of Jesus. And any attack on, on grace is an anathema to the true gospel. And, and then just go figure, because here's this formerly pious Religious Jewish guy, Paul, who used to live as if circumcision was essential to any person of God, and now he calls circumcision a mutilating of the flesh. And that Greek word for mutilation is literally a false cutting. It's a false cutting. So he's saying, look, circumcision is not what makes a person worthy to be saved. The the only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's it. You can't, here you go. We can wear t-shirts and we can wear bumper stickers and that's all fine, but that doesn't necessarily mean you are a Christian. What's going on on the outside of your body doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. You are transformed from the inside out. The Holy Spirit fills you on the inside. That's what makes you a Christian. It's Tom Schrader's old joke. He actually had somebody um, answer his question once this way. He said, are you a Christian? He says, well, of course I am. I was born in Kansas and I drive a pickup truck. Okay, That's the Kansas version of circumcision, apparently. That makes me a Christian. A Christian, is any, a Christian is the one who puts their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. And he says in verse 3, For we, meaning the Christians who live by the Spirit, we are the real circumcision. And we didn't have surgery. Instead, we had this metaphorical surgery on our heart. We have a spiritual circumcision of the heart. And as a result, we never put confidence in the flesh, but rather we put our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the reformer John Calvin said it this way six or seven hundred years ago. We put confidence in the flesh anytime we put our faith in anything outside of Christ. So, how do we put confidence in the flesh today? Well, any of the self whatever movements, the meism of today, so self help, self esteem, self actualization. Do you see a pattern there? That's putting confidence in the flesh. But it doesn't stop there. Putting confidence in the flesh is also through the myriad. Of, of false gods that we have, uh, wealth acquisition, education, power, status, control, sex, any of those things, which in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but when we put our identity, our, our life foundation, we put our hope for fulfillment in those things, they become false gospels. And notice that each one of those false gospels that I just mentioned are things that you and I conjure and work at. So again, that's putting confidence in our own flesh Um, Human beings, this is what I found about human beings, myself included. Human beings are grace-resistant and grace-ignorant. We just don't get it. And we resist it, because is our world set up like that? Absolutely not. Our world is totally merit-based. So we've been been trained since we were little kids that everything is about merit. And so when this message of grace comes along, it is incumbent upon God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, converting our hearts to change our heart to understand what grace really and truly is. God has to work in our lives for us to be able to get this. And so then you look at the next four verses, four through seven, and this warning continues through verse six before he starts with the gospel in verse seven. Verse 4, though I myself have, re- have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You want to you compare resumes? Let's compare resumes, okay? Um, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. But whatever gain I had, those seven things, I count as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of gaining Christ, for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of being found in Christ. Paul says, listen to my resume of status and achievement. I rule. You wanna compare? Which is what they used to do. No one compares to me. And then verses five and six are this seven item resume that he now, in verse 8, which we'll get there, he compares to dung. That's that that ancient uh, Greek cuss word that I mentioned last week that Paul gives us in chapter 3, and we'll get to that in just a second. He calls his resume dung. It's rubbish. Uh, And so uh, understand what's going on here is ancient orators, wise men, sages, and pious religious persons, they used to get together and recite their Their resumes to each other in order to feel superior to each other, in order to understand the pecking order, and in order to establish their credibility. And these recitations usually focused on four important categories, background and upbringing, education, achievement, and status. So look at each of these things for Paul. I'll just mention each one, but I want you to see how that fits into this. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So what? I mean, what's wrong with the seventh or the ninth? No, 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 not the seventh day, not the ninth day. I was circumcised on the eighth day. This is a much bigger deal than we realize. This this indicates a precision following of the old covenant mosaic law, that he was part of a family that did everything absolutely by the letter. They were perfect in their execution of the law. So that's about his background and upbringing. And then he says, I'm of the people of Israel. I have my national bona fides. I am part of God's nation. Nationalism doesn't get any better than me, man. I'm I'm the best flag waver there is. That's about background and upbringing as well. And he says, I'm not only of the people of Israel, but I'm also of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only am I of, of the correct nation, but I'm from the very best and the most highly regarded tribe or subgroup of people inside that correct nation. Benjamin, the best tribe. Again, that's background and upbringing. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only am I uh, from the correct nation, but I am the correct ethnicity. And not only am I the correct es- ethnicity, but I was born into the correct ne- ethnicity. I was never grafted in. I never changed my life. And not only that, but, but I also speak the language of the Hebrews. I, I, I read ancient Hebrew, and I can speak modern uh, Aramaic. Uh, he says, this is, this is him talking about how pure he is. He says, I am... I am so pure, I wouldn't have to wash my hands to do surgery or need pizza dough. That's how pure I am. And that's his upbringing and achievement. And then he says, I'm a Pharisee. There was no stricter, more difficult Jewish, Jewish religious faction to be a part of than the Pharisees. I've read about what it takes to become a Pharisee, all the different levels that you have to get through. And believe me, it was, for, it was reserved for the elite few uh, the Pharisees were. You had to go through. So here you go, here you go. In the NBA, LeBron is a Pharisee, and the Lakers just got another Pharisee. They got Davis. Okay, the Suns kind of have a Pharisee in Devin Booker. We could use a couple more Pharisees on the Suns, but there's like only 15 or 20 Pharisees in the NBA. That's how exclusive it is. I'll I, I tell you. Here's what it's like. It's like getting into Yale Law School or Stanford Medical School, or the Arizona State University Hugh Down School of Human Communication. That's how difficult it is to become a Pharisee, and that's all about education and achievement. And then he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the very church that I'm now a part of. This zeal thing, which is about achievement and status, this zeal thing, we have to understand in ancient times, it was a badge of honor and an expectation that one would do violence to anyone who did not conform to their religion, whatever that religion was. This wasn't necessarily a Jewish thing, it was a piety thing. But one of the interesting things about the gospel of Jesus is that we're not called to this aggressive violence. This is very, in fact, we're called to quite the opposite. And that's hard. Um, this is really countercultural. But this is also one of the reasons why Christianity grew so much in those first three centuries in the Roman Empire because they used to persecute violently the Christians and they'd just go, yeah, okay, I've got Christ. That's all I need. And and it was a testimony of their faith. And then finally he says, I'm blameless under the law. It's not that Paul didn't sin. It's that when Paul did sin, he followed the absolute letter of the Mosaic law in order to correct his waywardness and atone for his transgression. He was perfect in how he did that every single time. He always sacrificed just the right animal at just the right time and said the right words. That's all about his status. But then the gospel begins in verse 7. Whatever I counted as a gain... I now count as loss. This is the gospel reversal. This turns everything upside down. And one thing Paul does here is he reprioritizes his privilege. Paul was sa- He's saying, look, I was on top ethnically. I was on top educationally. I was on top religiously. I was on top in my status. But now all of that, I humbly submit to Christ because I give all of that up I don't even wanna talk about those things anymore. I just wanna talk about Christ. And so what Paul understands and what he's trying to get us to understand and what we need to understand is that the love that God has for us does not ever require us to fill out an application, put together a resume, or find letters of recommendation. There's no woo-foo form on the internet. There's, there's no gospel site where you write your little essay. Th- th- this is, this, he's saying, look, you are in Christ by accepting Jesus, and that is pretty incredible. But again, we struggle to understand such a thing because everything in our temporal world is based on merit. It's based on our merit. So we struggle to truly understand grace. And the same was true back then. That's why Paul writes so much more about this than probably any other thing. Paul says, my credibility is in Christ and Christ alone. My credibility is in his finished work. My credibility is not in my resume. Those dogs, however, they only care about human credentials. And Paul understands this more than we realize on the surface. Again, this is context. The orators, sages, wise men, philosophers, and religious experts of Paul's day, including Paul at one time, would compare their resumes in order to establish their credentials. It's kind of like an ancient version of guys today comparing their monster trucks or their muscle cars. You know, I got a Mustang, Well, I got a Camaro, and I got you both beat, I got a Dodge Challenger, that sort of thing. Paul, Paul changes the game. He says, no matter what you want to compare, I'm going to just tell you I'm in Christ. My resume is Jesus. By the way, I don't drive a Challenger. I drive a Volvo. It's much more gospel-centered. At any rate, my resume is Jesus. Just Jesus. Only Jesus. I can fit my resume on half a business card. That's what he says. That's our resume, too. That's the good news of Christ. Paul's resume is our resume as well. Any Christian has the... Have you ever looked at somebody else's resume and wish you had their resume? You've got Jesus's resume. You've got his righteousness. You've got his holiness. You've got his perfection. You've got his sacrifice. You've got his resurrection. You've got everything Jesus when you are found in Christ. And then the last four verses, more gospel, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and, sc- and count them as rubbish, as dung, as the Greek word is skubala. There's that cuss word. We'll talk about that in just a second. I count all of that as rubbish That I, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So more gospel here. And this is Paul, in verse eight, you find Paul's accounting. These words gain and loss were actually ancient Greek accounting terms. And, And he's saying this gain and loss, I've been changed completely by gaining Christ. What, what formerly went into the gain column, his power, his national identity, his religious piety, his status, his achievement, and his duty, all of that now goes into the loss column. And the crucified Messiah, which ironically he used to count as loss, now goes into the gain column, and it's the only thing in the gain column. It's kind of, anybody play Monopoly? Okay, I don't know if you've seen the research, um, but... <clears throat> In order to win at Monopoly, more than 60% of the time, the person who wins Monopoly is the one who ends up with the uh, Boardwalk and Park Place Monopoly, regardless of anything else that they might have, okay? The, the dark blue Monopoly, okay? So when you're playing Monopoly, it's that person who will give up everything they have, all their cash, all their properties, everything they have in order to get Boardwalk and Park Place because they know, they know the value of Park Place. All right, I can tell by your faces, a lot of you don't play board games, which is... Really sad. So I'll give you a different illustration. This might, this might connect with some of you older folks a little bit better, since I'm a little bit older, but it's like in 1992, when the Phoenix Suns shocked the basketball world in Phoenix by trading three really good players, one of them an NBA All-Star, in order to get one player and just one player, who was Charles Barkley. They, and, and, and let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I liked Jeff Hornacek. I liked Tim Perry. I liked Andrew Lang. They're part, especially Hornacek, they're part of the Phoenix Suns legacy, I mean, part of their franchise legacy. I gladly gave up those three guys in order to get Charles because why? Charles was special. Charles is special, Charles says, by the way. But he was special, almost got us that NBA championship. We, we, we they were willing to give up half of their roster in order to get Charles and folks what you and I need to understand is we're not talking about board games and basketball here We're talking about life-and-death stuff. Paul is saying trade everything you have for Jesus because that's what we need That's what he's saying right here. So Paul confesses I'm willing to lose everything of value in this world to have Jesus including the sufferings of Jesus if that's what it means and I will count those worldly things as scuba. There's our cuss word. I'll tell you, a lot is made of this word, but it's, it's, not, it's not that big a deal. Here's what it literally means. It's a mixture of kitchen scraps and excrement. So around the first century household, you would, get, you would have to gather all this stuff up together on a daily basis, and then you would take it out to the garbage heap, which was generally outside of the little town that you lived in, and you'd throw it on the garbage heap, and that's where the scuba all went, okay? And then, ironically, this is where all the dogs would hang around because they would, they would root around in that scuba in order to find something to eat. Isn't that ironic? Do you see all the rhetorical threads here that Paul is, is uh, giving us? Well, that's what he thinks of his resume. The most impressive resume in the world, he thinks of it as something that he puts into a, a little pooper scooper and throws outside of the city. That's what he thinks of it. So Paul wants to gain Christ and that's it. So the question becomes, what are our resume gains today that we should count as loss for the sake of Christ? And I'll let you do some self-reflection and self-assessment to answer that question for yourself, but here's what you need to know in the midst of that. Whatever those things are, Paul is not saying that those things are necessarily bad. He's not annoyed at these resume items. What he's worried about is how those resume items, when they become more important to us than they really are, they become a danger to our faith. That's what he's worried about. He's not saying you have to eliminate these things. He's saying you've got to keep them in the proper perspective and be willing to give them up in order to be found in Christ, in order to gain Christ, in order to know Christ. And also remember that these resume items are usually manufactured by us, whereas knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ is done by grace. So verse 9, he says, I want to be found in Jesus. That means he wants to be spiritually united as one with Christ and not find his righteousness that comes from the law. Why not? Because that's unattainable. You ever tried to set a standard for your life? You get to set the standard for your life, and then you find out that you can't even live up to your own standard, and you have to adjust your own standard. You're mad that other people are giving you a standard to live by. You can't even live by your own standard. That's how bad the law is. And he says you can't find righteousness in that. But you can find it in Jesus because he accomplished it. He lived perfectly and became that um, lamb that was unblemished that went to the cross. And so we put our faith and trust in him. And our resume is now his by faith. But that also means accepting the entire package. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 starts out so well. But then it gets a little bit rough. That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings and become like him in death. See, it starts so well. I'm going to know the resurrection. Yes, I'm going to know life. But then we find out that the actual power of resurrection comes as a package. And the only way you end up with the power of the resurrection is you have to live the life of suffering and of dying to self that Jesus lived. We need to understand that resurrection always comes with suffering and that the suffering, if it's in Christ, will come with resurrection. The two literally become one, and you can't have one without the other. If we're going to have resurrection, we're going to have the trials and the tribulations of living as a Christian. The, The two are inextricably linked. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ means that we will know the resurrection and we will know his suffering as well. But verse 11, Paul says, doesn't matter though. I'll do anything for the righteousness and the resurrection of Christ. And all that Paul does is in response to the gift of grace that Jesus has given him. And Paul's call to us is no different than that. And it's the same call to our church today as it was to the church in Philippi in 61. It's interesting. I want you to think about this. This is, I think, pretty powerful in our contemporary relationships, especially romantic relationships, we maybe don't say this out loud, but we feel it. The one who loves the least tends to have the control and the power in the relationship because they have the least to lose. But with Paul and Jesus, they're okay with loving the most and losing everything. Again, that, is just, that just flips everything upside down. And remember, there has never been a time in history where being a Christian didn't come with a cost. It always comes with a cost. Uh, Recently, I was reading an essay by uh, Michael Kruger, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, and he was talking about the second-century church. So this is 1900 years ago. And and here's what he said. He said, there are four characteristics of the second-century church that you need to be aware of. Number one, culture opposed the church in the second century, and they opposed it radically and they persecuted and oppressed the church. And there were people inside of the church who kept walking around saying, we're in trouble, the church isn't going to make it, the culture is going to overwhelm us, we got to change. And it's no different today. Have you ever noticed that there are people in every single generation who look out at the world and look out at the culture and say, if we don't change, we're not going to survive? I just think that's the height of arrogance. I, I remember in the 90s that was going on so loud and clear. Guys walking around going, if you don't start doing church like the way we're doing church, the church is going to die, and that's going to be terrible. Isn't it the height of arrogance to say that I know better than God how to do church? I think that might be a problem, and I'm hearing a lot of that again today. We're still here. We're going to be here. We may look a little bit different, but the church is always going to be here. We've survived 2,100 years. Believe me, it wasn't because we're smart. It's because God is good and God is great. Here's the second thing. The second century church also saw themselves as social misfits. They didn't, they didn't belong or fit anywhere. Don't you kind of feel like that too? We're kind of misfits? Well, we are. I think it's interesting how Peter opens his first letter. In that first verse, he says, I am writing to the elect exiles. Do you see what he's saying there? I'm writing to the elect You, the elect, you have been shown favor by God. You have the blessings of God. But that makes you an exile. You no longer fit in this world. You're supposed to be in this world, but you no longer fit in this world. Your home is in heaven. Your home is in the New Jerusalem, which is to come. That's why you don't feel exactly at home here. And we shouldn't, we're misfits. The second century church had the same problem. Also, the 2nd century church faced persecution and exclusion, but they did it with grace and dignity, and they never gave in. We will continue at Redemption Church to preach the word and its truth, but we also, in the midst of that, need to suffer magnanimously, because not everybody's going to appreciate that. We need to stand by our biblical teaching, but suffer magnanimously when that suffering comes. And then number four, the 2nd century church was committed to Scripture. Culture and context never change the truth of the Bible. You know, we are always under pressure today. I constantly get this. We're under pressure to renounce, to manipulate, or to walk away from the parts of Scripture that don't fit with the current cultural fads. That, that's not something that's new. That's been going on uh, since Jesus rose from the dead. Culture has always tried to get God's word manipulated to look um, like it. Same thing today. You know, as I was putting together this message, one of the things I was strongly reminded of is that um, one of the subtle mistakes that we all make in our relationship with Jesus is that we believe that our job in the gospel is to please God rather than to trust God. No matter how many times we hear that message of put your faith in God, we still almost, it, it comes in as faith, but it goes out as I got to please him, I got to please him, I got to please him, I got to do, I got to work, I got to do all of these things. And that's a big part of what these 11 verses boil down to. If you are in Christ, understand, God is pleased with you, end of story, that's the end of the debate. There's no more discussion that needs to be had. It's a closed, done deal. Our gospel life is not about scrambling to please God, but rather it's about resting in who Jesus is and simply trusting that. That is what grace is, and that's what the gospel is. Let me pray, and we'll start our reflection time. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for uh, filling Paul with your Holy Spirit to write these words that are just as applicable today, maybe even more applicable to our lives today, to our church today. God, help us to be filled with your Holy Spirit. And by that, I mean, we know the Spirit is here. Help us to welcome the Spirit. Help us to welcome the Spirit in a way that doesn't hold anything back. God, let us give our entire lives to you and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.